Life is hectic, so wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with Factor's chef-crafted and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 options a week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, they've got a variety that fits your lifestyle. Factor has restaurant-quality meals ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. They also have various easy options for the entire day, from breakfast to midday bites, smoothies, and more. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is a nutritious and delicious experience, and it won't break the bank. You can customize your meals by choosing 6 to 18 per week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule deliveries anytime to fit your schedule. Factor meals are 100% hassle-free, giving you more time for what matters. Head to factormeals.com slash otherside50 and use the code otherside50 to get 50% off. That's code otherside50 at factormeals.com for 50% off your delicious, hassle-free meals. My name is Catherine Massell, and I currently live in Austin, Texas. I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and moved away when it was time for college. Um, I've lived a lot of places, and so far, I'm, I'm delighted. I've had a very eventful life, and it's been exciting but nothing really compares to the experience that I'm going to share with you today. For me, that was one of the most meaningful moments that I've ever experienced. So the experience that I had happened in a suburb of New Orleans, Louisiana. It was Metairie, and that's where I was growing up as a child. It was a Monday morning when school was canceled. I was just going into second grade. There was a hurricane that had gone through over the weekend, and that's pretty common in New Orleans. And we got word early Monday morning that school was going to be canceled. I'm the youngest of eight children. So I was seven years old at the time. And the oldest child was 11 years older than me. So all of these kids were excited that school had been canceled. So it was like, you know, woo, another day of summer happening. So one of my brothers, he was four years older than me, jumped on a bicycle and I was on the handlebars and we rode to our local convenience store like we typically did so many times that summer. And it was a beautiful kind of after storm, like rainbow type of um, day, looking for rainbows, kind of cloudy, kind of sunny. Uh, we went to the convenience store and that I remember pretty well. Like I remember most memories. What I'm about to tell you, I remember like it was yesterday. I remember leaving the convenience store and I was on the handlebars, my brother's pedaling the bike. And I don't remember the accident, but we were hit by a young teenage driver who was doing 60 miles an hour and hit us doing 60. And our bodies were thrown like 20 feet. They found our, my shoes far away. But what I remember was suddenly being above my body, floating above, kind of facing down. And the height would have been about the height of the top of telephone poles. We were outside. That's kind of about how it felt. I was looking down and I saw this mangled little blonde haired girl. And it was surprising that I saw that it was me. And I was looking at me and the scene and the whole scene as if I was watching a movie, literally. If you've ever been to a movie and then went back home, the space that I was looking down at my body was a place that I had been before. And it's a place that I believe that I will be again. And I was watching almost like a movie. Behind me, 
I never turned around, but behind me was an essence of love and light. And it was a, I'm going to say being for lack of a better word, but it was a being that if I would describe it, it would be like a God or a Jesus because, you know, I was born and raised Catholic, but it was this loving being that was behind me over my shoulder watching with me. And there was colorful light emanating from behind me. I never turned around to look at it, but it looked like the scene I was looking at was almost black and white in comparison to the light that was shining behind me. And I'm watching this child. And at that moment, there was a gentleman, I'm going to guess he's probably late teens or early twenties that was kneeling over me. This was 1974, so it was a long time ago. And the guy was in style, he had curly hair and a mustache, kind of like Sonny Bono from Sonny and Cher. He had bell-bottom jeans on, and he was kneeling and hands over my body, and he had never seen anything like this. This is what I was feeling from him. He was devastated. This was the most traumatic moment he'd ever seen in his life. And he didn't know what to do for me, but I could feel his empathy and I could feel his thoughts. He didn't know if he should pray. He didn't know if he should start CPR. He was thinking of blowing in my mouth. I could hear his thoughts as if I was reading his mind. And the ground around my head, everything that I saw was so detailed. Like I could see the little shadow of the pebbles that I remember thinking the sun would shine differently. It would look a little different because the shadows from the pebbles. I actually saw the blood that was pulled around my head. It's almost like a living essence. And none of this was traumatic to me. I was not in pain or anything, but I remember feeling for this guy who wanted to help me so badly. And he just was there for me waiting for some type of EMS to arrive. And then I wondered like, what happened to me? Like this little girl. And immediately with my thoughts, because I thought that I was shifted over to a young girl, long hair, like they had in the seventies, kind of like a Barbie doll. She was leaning over the hood of the car and she was crying. Like, you know, she was in so much trouble. She felt bad because she just hit two children. She was in her teens, but I don't know the exact details, but she wasn't supposed to be driving the car that day or she wasn't supposed to be speeding. She was going to be in so much trouble for this. And she felt terrible and she was worried. So she was the person who had hit us. And then I could hear someone calling talking to my sister. My sister's name was Terry. She's seven years older than me. I had three older brothers and then my sister and then three more boys and then a girl. There were eight kids in my family. I was the youngest, three boys born first and then my sister and then three more boys and then me. So I could hear my sister was my hero at that time. We shared a room together. She was my protector. I was her little girl. She wanted a sister so bad because she had so many brothers. I could hear her in the distance. People were saying, go to her, she's calling you. And I could see this little girl's mangled body. My leg was bent backwards. I could see my lips moving, but I don't recall what I was saying, but apparently I was calling for her. So immediately when I thought of my sister, it panned me over to her. And what I saw of my sister was remarkable. Until that moment, my sister was my hero. She was my best friend. She took care of me a lot. We shared a bed together. She entertained me. She was proud of me. I was her little sister and there was a lot of love. What I saw of my sister at that moment when I was calling to her, she was saying to the group of girls around her, I can't go to her. It was too much for her. My sister was 
what I saw was my sister was my mother's helper and she had a huge responsibility. She helped take care of all the boys. She helped to clean up and do all of the things. And the responsibility that she was given at that age was too much for her. I saw her at private schools that our parents sent us to, but my parents were struggling to make ends meet at that time. And the shame she felt from having to wear used clothing to private school with uniforms, the shame that she felt from having brothers that were kind of mean to her and everybody knew them. Think of like the Dukes of Hazard, some Southern boys that were pretty bad, but she was very much a rule follower. And I just saw this guilt of her. I saw a guilt that she carried with her from being in this role that she had. And I saw resentment that she had towards me because I was the youngest and I didn't have to do laundry or dishes or any, I was, I was too small to do that. And it was as if she was fighting a battle that didn't exist. She took it on much more seriously than maybe she should have. And it was eye-opening to me because if she would have just told me that, which she never ever mentioned, then I would have just thought like, I'm sorry, I can't really too bad for you kind of thing, but I felt how she felt. And because of that, I've always had an unconditional love for my sister because I know what she went through and how hard that is. As we got older, we probably would have gone separate ways. We have different lives. But because of that, I always have and always will have unconditional love for my sister. She couldn't come to me then because it was too much for the life that she had been living thus far. She was always afraid that one of my brothers or someone was going to die because they were bad doing, you know, whatever boys do. And here she was at that moment when her little sister might be dying and she couldn't go to me. At that moment, I wondered, well, where's my mom? And when I thought that, shifted right over to my mother. It was as if my thoughts were directing me to where I could go, what I could see, what I could feel. And there was my mother who was about 35 years old, the mother of eight kids. She was my hero until this point, every day of my life. When I woke up in the morning, my mom was awake. And every night when I went to bed, my mother, she was awake. I've never seen my mom sleep. I've never seen her wearing pajamas. She was busy and she was doing the best job you could even imagine taking care of eight kids. She was incredible. So I saw her and when I saw my mother, I saw things that there's nothing that a child my age could have known. I saw the shame that she went through from having a child so young. I don't know if she had finished high school and the family members that were involved with her marrying my dad may or may not have been all that happy about her her getting married at such a young age, or maybe it just wasn't a complete acceptance of her. I saw her as a child. She was raised by an uncle and I never questioned it, but there were questionable things in her background that of who she was. And then I, I was shown, and I'm watching this with this entity, and I was shown a field of which was kind of multicolored flowers that were almost weed flowers with some thorns in it. And there was a white flower that was representation of my mother. And this white flower or had been like overlooked, like she was living this life and she was really like a pure good soul amongst these, you know, just average kind of things. So that was kind of surprising to see that about my mother. I looked closely and my lips were moving again. I don't know what I was saying. I wasn't in pain, wasn't in any kind of distress. And she was there begging for my life. I don't know what exactly she was saying, but apparently they didn't have oxygen and ambulance back then in New Orleans, Louisiana, but my lips were blue and she was essentially begging them and they were just kind of 
blowing her off, for lack of a better word. They, they didn't have what she wanted. And I saw that at this moment, if I would have died, it would have not been okay for her. She was doing such a good job and this was everything that she could actually handle. And then I saw hands go towards an infant child and it was me and it was my mother's hands. And I could feel her exhaustion. And I could feel how tired she was and having eight children. And it was just so much love that she had to offer. So the being that I was with, I had a choice to go back to that life or turn around and go home where I had been before. And as I mentioned, we'll go again. And it was almost identical to what I had said. If you go into a movie theater and then you leave, like it was my choice. It was like I was watching a movie that I had somehow created. So because of my mother, there wasn't an option to not go back. So the moment I thought I wanted to go back, I went back with this being. And I mentioned, and again, there aren't words to describe it, but with my thoughts, like how fun this was to go see my sister, see these people, see my mom, just by the thoughts, like negotiating this space and that area by thinking. And that being said to me in a kind, gentle way, it, it wasn't these exact words, but it was guard your thoughts because that is how your life will be. Like, be careful what you think. And he shared that with me because I just said how fun that was. And I said, I, I want to go back. And immediately, it's like my thoughts brought me back there. So the next thing I remember, I was back into my body. And it was incredible because I was laying in a bed at the hospital and I was looking straight up at the ceiling. And the ceiling was so incredibly beautiful. Um, it was a beige ceiling and it had the crossbars, like metal crossbars that were slightly glossy and ceiling tiles that were also the same color, but they were matte and the contrast was incredible. And I didn't have the background noise yet that we have in life. You know, sometimes our thoughts just move as if we're watching a television, you know, they, or our thoughts flow and move as if we're watching a television and they kind of take up space. When I was watching that scene and feeling this, that was gone. I believe my mind was on the ground with that little girl and I was just pure energy. And my thoughts were so pure. It wasn't convoluted or polluted by the thoughts that just run through our head all the time that we're kind of not even aware of. Just goes. So I went back to my body and I walked away from that. I remember seeing a mangled little girl. I had a big scar on my forehead and I walked away from that accident without a scratch. My brother was in a body cast for I don't know, four months. He had so many broken legs and they were baffled how I just didn't have any scratches. I honestly believe with the breath that brought me back into my body that I was somehow healed, but I had essentially just an exterior scar on my forehead, but no injuries internally. So what this experience did for me when I was younger was it gave me an insight that showed me that I wasn't this flesh and blood, that there was something inside of me that was brighter than the sun that I'd never really tapped into before. I'll give you an example. When I was in first grade, I probably had undiagnosed dyslexia. I wasn't the best reader, but I was also young because I was an October birthday and first grade taking turns reading out loud in my class. And when it was my turn, I couldn't read whatever the material was. So the teacher at that time, 
put me in a corner, made me kneel down in a corner and made me shameful and told all the other students how unintelligent I was. And it was an incredibly shameful moment for me. Well, the rest of that year, I kind of identified myself as that. That's who I was identifying of that's who I was going to be. Well, after this accident, you know, it was the first day of second grade, started second grade. And the first time I saw that teacher in first grade who had done that to me, I remember thinking, she shouldn't be a teacher. She should not be in education. It wasn't a reminder of how dumb I was, how it had been before. This experience made me realize that I'm not that little girl that was laying in the street. I'm not stupid or dumb or whatever. I'm something so much more than that. We get labeled. And if we believe who we're told we are or who we think we are, it kind of limits us from living our fullest life and maybe even our potential. Like I mentioned my sister, she had all of these, you know, the shame and this guilt and these things that she carried with her that it wasn't even her battle or her wounds to carry. It was kind of, but she internalized that. And her life was very difficult that far because she really took it very seriously. So another example would be the nurse when I was at the hospital, one of the first persons I met, I saw her and I could feel that she was a hard worker and I kind of saw who she was, not nearly to the extent that I did while I was experiencing the experience. She was supporting her whole family. And I don't know how I knew that. It didn't make me psychic, but it just gave me an awareness of people. Another example, parents, when we'd see a homeless person, like at the light begging for things, they would say what a lot of people say, you know, don't give them money. That person is going to do drugs. They're lazy. They're whatever reason. But I remember at that age, after this experience, looking at the homeless person saying, this is somebody's child. This is somebody's brother or sister. And whatever it is that they have done or think they have done to, to deserve being homeless and begging, it's not real. It's not a real thing. It's just the, what they're carrying. And all the culmination of things that happen to us up to a certain point is who we think we are. We are not that. We are not our mistakes. We are not anything that's not beautiful divine creatures we forgive ourselves for things that was one of the features of this that is carried with me as an adult i sometimes they say if you're too open-minded your brains will fall out and sometimes i feel like i'm stuffing my brains back in but i'm very open to meeting different people of different cultures and different because i might not see them as who they say they are you know certain ethnicity certain whatever they're just these people and we're all just trying to figure it out so that was one of the things that I took away from this. And I think that it has served me very well in my life. Another thing is when the divine entity that was behind me told me, guard your thoughts. I remember as a child thinking, okay, I'm going to try to be very deliberate with the things that I think, thinking about positive things. And this was way before, you know, Tony Robbins or Wayne Dyer. I had no idea who that was, but it infected me in a way to realize that what you think about might somehow affect your current life because definitely what I thought about in that experience affected what I was going to do and where I was. So that came with me. And when I was a child after that event, I'd look up in the sky and I would see airplanes go by. And I remember thinking, I don't know where it's going, but I knew there was something so much bigger and so much more. I just wanted to be someplace else. I would even tell my mom or my sister sometimes, I don't feel like I belong here right now, or I don't know where I belong because there was so much more that I needed to experience. But all I had was my head 
to know where things were. And it made me think that our head may not be our friend. I always say, because of that experience, living your life by using your head is like trying to use a calculator to write a poem. And a calculator is an amazing tool, but you can't really write a poem. And our poem is, our life is a poem that we should live it that way, not trying to negotiate it with our head. Like we don't necessarily have to be a victim circumstance if you got burned once from something in your head doesn't mean that that's going to happen again and then i'm currently in the medical field it's something that i went into a little bit later in life after many careers and wonderful life but my current career is in the medical field and i work with death and dying all the time i work with people that are terminally ill and when life support needs to be removed i'm the one who does terminal extubations i'm a respiratory therapist and it's fascinating to me and a privilege actually to be present when people are being terminally extubated and the family's there and and i'm not afraid to die i mean of course i don't want to die a horrible tragic death or anything but i think the moment we die is probably the most glorious moment of our life and i feel that way because of this experience but when i'm with families or even individuals and we do terminal extubations I like to be there with them. I like to tell the families, like, maybe it's a good time to talk to them and let them know how you feel. Because in the medical setting, they need a little guidance people don't know. And often, I think if I was younger, I might not have had the wherewithal to guide the family members and the people. But sometimes it's definitely harder for those left behind. You know, you see the tragedy and the guilt and the shame that is left behind when you have to make a decision to do a terminal extubation. So before this experience happened, I was a little girl uh, living in Southern Louisiana with a family. At that time, I was guilty because I was told I couldn't read very well. I had experiences from up until that point in my life. I thought I was who I was because of what I had experienced that far in my life. How could I be anything else than just six, seven-year-old little girl who, but that moment that I went to the place above looking at I wasn't that little girl I was who I always had been like forever (laughs) and I was in a place that I had been before it was like being home and I was watching a movie and it's a place that I know that I will go back to it's a very familiar place to me and it was as if I was watching a movie. I wasn't male or female in that moment. I was just looking down and it was surprising to see this cute little girl. I was kind of ageless. I wasn't old, but I wasn't young. I don't remember seeing any body parts or anything. I was just looking down, but I was, I was home. I was home and who was with me was someone that I knew we've known each other, uh, still know each other. I haven't had any experiences since then on earth that like miraculous or no one's whispered in my ear or anything like that. But I absolutely believe that when I die, that's where I'm going back to.